Hi, I'm Durrani for Cheap Astronomy, www.cheapastro.com. This is SISS, Science on the ISS, and today's episode is Robots. Imagine that a bolt has come loose on the outside of the International Space Station. It's a bolt on the Illudium Pu-36 Explosive Space Modulator, and, unfortunately, you are the Illudium Mission Specialist. Now, in order to tighten that bolt, you are first going to have to spend several hours acclimatizing to a 100% oxygen atmosphere, before you can even get into your spacesuit. The backstory to that is that oxygen is only 21% of the air we breathe on Earth. The rest is mostly nitrogen, with a bit of water vapor and CO2, none of which do anything much to keep you alive. So, in a spacecraft, all you really need to stay alive is pure oxygen at 21% of one atmosphere of pressure. This is how all space missions up to and including the Apollo missions were run. It's easier to build a spacecraft that can hold 21% of one atmosphere of pressure than a full one atmosphere. Trouble is, as we tragically discovered with Apollo 1, filling a spacecraft with pure oxygen is a major fire risk, unless you are very careful. The rest of the Apollo missions were very, very careful, but with the space shuttle and subsequent ISS missions, astronauts breathed an air mix of 21% oxygen, 78% nitrogen, and the usual trace gases mixed in, all at a full one atmosphere of pressure. But there is no way that you can work in a spacesuit filled with one atmosphere of pressure. You will be able to do a great impression of a Michelin man, but you will not have the strength to bend your arms or legs in for any length of time. Indeed, you will struggle to make a fist, or to grip the torque wrench you will need to tighten that loosened bolt on the Illudium Pu-36 explosive space modulator. So, if you want to do anything in a spacesuit, you have to go back to the old system of breathing pure oxygen at 21% of atmospheric pressure. This is a problem when you have been breathing the ISS cabin air at one atmosphere of pressure. The only solution is to go and sit in an airlock for an hour or more, breathing in pure oxygen and breathing out all the dissolved nitrogen that's in your blood. If you don't, all that nitrogen will come bubbling out of your blood when you shift to the 21% atmospheric pressure in your spacesuit. In other words, you would get the bends, and you would probably die. Anyhow, once properly acclimatized, you can get into your spacesuit and then get out into space. Out there, you have to keep tethering and untethering yourself as you work over to where the bolt is, then you will need to confer with mission control. Uh, Houston, ready to tighten the bolt now, before deploying the purpose-built tool that you have brought with you. If it now turned out that you had left that tool back in the airlock, there would be some mightily pissed people down in mission control. But, of course, a ground crew has been monitoring your every move, so when you reach down for the Illudium Pu-36 torque wrench, it is fortunately there. And so, you are able to fit it to the bolt, twist and tighten the bolt, 
check back with Mission Control that all is well, and then slowly make your way back to the airlock. This whole exercise will have taken half a day and involved a ground crew of maybe six people, not only on the day, but also in all the detailed planning beforehand. And despite all the planning and all the safety checks, tightening that bolt will have been one of the most dangerous things that you have ever done in your astronaut career. So, with half the podcast gone on discussing spacewalks, hopefully you can now see why having a space-enabled robot on the ISS might be a really good idea. For example, wouldn't it be great if you could just go, R2, that stabilizer's broken loose again, see if you can't lock it down. Now, we probably need a whole lot more technological evolution before robots will understand that the urgent instruction, lock it down, means assess the design schematics and then use the appropriate tool to reduce the existing gap between the stabilizer and the bulkhead, but without damaging the stabilizer, the bulkhead, or the fastening mechanisms. And do it quickly, please, because we have an Imperial TIE fighter on our tail. Rather than using verbal commands, it's much more likely that we will operate the first generation of space robots using telepresence. Astronauts can put on video display goggles that will enable them to see through a robot's video camera eyes, and they can put on sensor gloves to control the robot's hands. Remotely operating a humanoid robot with binocular vision and human-like hands means that human operators can make a robot exactly mimic their actions and hence do most of the things that a human might do on a spacewalk. After all, something that no one really does on a spacewalk is walk. It is mostly about what you do with your hands. Humans can currently operate the Canada arm to do some pretty complex tasks outside the ISS. But if we could remotely operate a mechanism that responds to the intricate hand-eye coordination that most people have been trained with from birth, then that will take the concept of remote control to a whole new level. Indeed, if it all goes according to plan, after five or ten minutes, astronauts fully immersed in robot telepresence will begin to feel like they are actually outside the ISS, using their oddly angular hands to turn the tool that tightens the bolt that repairs the fault on the Illudium Pu-36 explosive space modulator and five or ten minutes may be all the time they need to complete a task that previously required several days of planning and several hours of doing. Robonaut 2, also called R2, has been on the ISS since February 2011. R2 has been powered up and put through a number of tests to check that it can operate in microgravity just as well as it operated back in 1G of gravity on Earth. R2 has followed some pre-programmed maneuvers, such as saying hello in sign language. A remote operator has also used telepresence to guide R2 to flip some fake switches and turn some fake dials and even catch a ball. For the three years it's been in orbit, R2's torso has been attached to a post, but the ISS has recently taken delivery of a pair of legs, launched aboard a Dragon resupply mission in April 2014. The only thing faintly humanoid about those legs are that there are two of them. Otherwise, each are three meters long, have seven joints each, and end with clamps rather than feet.
as any astronaut will tell you, human legs are pretty much useless in microgravity, and human feet are completely useless. So the main purpose of R2's legs is not to walk, but to reach out and fasten onto things around the station so R2 can move itself around while always keeping its two hands free. In 2015, R2 will get a backpack, essentially a big storage battery that will allow it to move around without being plugged in. And after another round of testing, there will be another upgrade that will then allow R2 to work in the cold vacuum of space. Ironically, R2's main challenge in working in the cold vacuum of space will be staying cool, since its current system of cooling fans will be useless. R2 particularly needs cooling around its main computer, which is not in its head, but in its stomach. R2 has several distributed processors around its body to manage the data flow from its various cameras and sensors, and to coordinate the movement of its various servo motors. To keep everything working optimally, R2 will probably be fitted with a water-cooled bodysuit, which will not be all that different to what the astronauts currently wear on their spacewalks. So, in the end, astronauts and their space robot companions will have quite a lot in common. After all, when you work on the ISS, it's all about staying cool. Thanks for listening. This has been Durani for Cheap Astronomy. www.cheapastro.com Cheap Astronomy offers an educational website where maybe one day we won't need Chewy to hand you that hydro spanner to make emergency repairs to the hyperdrive. No ads, no Ewoks, just good science. Bye!